today we're going to be talking about a work by an author who I would describe as a grandfather of the dad lit genre. And the reason I say that is because the book, the edition I read, has a quote on the cover by Jack Higgins, another dad lit classic author. And in the back of the book, it has little advertisements for the author's other books. And they include more uh, quotes by Jack Higgins, but they also include a ton of quotes by Lee Child. Oh. So this is Dadlit endorsed and recommended by Dadlit authors. Um, including, you say you're going to say that a grandfather of Dadlit, but we're not doing grandfather lit. That's true. Honestly, if I do want to do an episode of like like uh formative books for for dadlit authors like the the books that dadlit authors read stuff like that we've talked b- briefly about like doing some uh uh haggard and uh, uh we did do a little bit of like poe during our halloween episode but i'd love to do some old stuff again well this is a book i think we called clancy and cussler the dean and duke of dadlit uh, i don't is- remember that but i like it <laughs> Uh, so we're, we're reading uh, "Where Eagles Dare" by Alistair MacLean, and it's a Clive great Cus- punk song. Yeah, I loved it. Alice, uh, so Clive Cussler has cited Alistair MacLean probably as his greatest influence, um, especially as a, as a writer. I was watching an interview where he talked about his writing process and his evolution as a writer, and he was saying what he did to write his first book is he basically copied Alistair MacLean. And he recommended that for aspiring novelists. He's like, you know, sit down with an, a book you really like and basically like repeat the structure. See how they, their pacing, how long their chapters are, how they start, how they stop. So Alistair McLean, you know, he taught Clive Cussler how to write. Uh, we've talked about hmm. this before in the past. Now, I, I don't think Clive Cussler sat down and retyped all of an Alistair McLean novel. We've talked about like writers doing that just to kind of get in the mind of a writer, they, another writer they like. But he studied McLean, and that's, you know, how he basically learned to write fiction. Hmm, interesting. So have you read any uh, Alistair McLean before? No, I hadn't, but I plan to now. I really enjoyed this book. Also, before we get too far into it, uh, the voice you're hearing is Chris, and uh, the other voice you're hearing is Connor, and welcome to Dadlit. Welcome to Dadlit. All right. Well, I've read. Yeah, I liked this book. I you've you've read him before. I read two novels. I've read two novels by him. Actually, when we hung out in Florida, I was reading one called The Sea Witch. Oh, that's right. That is by him. That cover is wild. Yeah, it's really good. And I read another one called River of Death, which is by him. That one's also good. It takes place in Brazil. And um, I do want to do an episode where we we talk about Germans in Brazil and the history of Germans living in Brazil and how Mm -hmm. that is reflected in some World War II literature, you know, World War II fiction. Um, Mm -hmm. But I've read also several of his short stories. And I do want to talk a little bit about one of his short stories, how it's historically significant in the the history of dad lit. Just to start off, I thought I would uh, give you a background of of who Alistair MacLean is, um, because uh, he's he's lived quite a life outside of his literary career. Alistair Stuart MacLean was born in Glasgow, Scotland in 1922. 
He's one of the best-selling fiction authors of all time. He fought in World War II in the Royal Navy. He served on a patrol boat off the coast of England and Scotland, and he ended up serving on some larger ships. During his time in the Navy, he participated in Operation Dragoon, which was the Allied invasion of southern France. He also participated in the Arctic convoys, which are the subject of his first novel, HMS Ulysses. Uh, he also went to the Pacific Theater, uh, Theater, Burma, British Malaya, and Sumatra, and saw action there. He was a fighting sailor. Like, he was, you know, I imagine this guy is like Popeye with a tattoo, and like, you know, like, he was he was a, a real fighting <laughs> sailor. Um, Do we have any word on if he likes spinach? Uh, he looks like a tough guy, and I've read interviews, and he's got like a tough personality to him. So he left the Navy in 1946. He went to university. He went. He worked a few different jobs. He got an MA, and he started writing short stories in college and got a few published. He pu- he passed away in 1987, but before then, he published over 30 titles and sold an estimated 150 million copies of his books. In 1954, this is the the important story. He published a short story called The Dillis. And the Dillis is Scotch Gaelic for the faithful. And this story is significant because it is the story that led to Maclean's discovery as a literary talent. And so the Dillis was first published in 1952 in the Glasgow Herald, it's a newspaper. Uh, and it was part of a short story competition run by the paper's editorial and writing staff. Of the 942 entries, the Dillis took first place. It earned McLean a hundred pound prize, and it you know it set him on the path to literary stardom. So shortly after the story was published in the paper, McLean was uh, approached by William Collins publisher Ian Chapman and Ian Chapman's wife Marjorie. Marjorie had read McLean's story in the newspaper, and she had been moved to tears by it. And she told her husband, "Listen, you got to find this guy and work with him because." This is just a short story, but this guy could be really good. He could publish books. So they found McLean over lunch. They got to know him. They became friends. They learned about his history in the in the Navy in World War II. And they said, Hey, you really should write a book. You know, you've got it, you've got it in you, and it would be great. And McLean, uh, like I said, he based upon interviews, he seems like a tough kind of cagey guy. And he was sort of evasive and non-committal, like, ah, whatever, maybe, I don't know. Um, regardless, a few weeks later, uh, Ian, the, the publisher he met with, uh, got a phone call saying, come by and pick up this book I just finished. And it was HMS Ulysses. It was his first novel, and it was published in 1955. It ended up selling 250,000 copies in the first six months. Um, he wrote it quickly. I saw a quote where McLean said he really doesn't like enjoy the writing process. So the sooner he finishes them, the better. And he typically will write a book in 35 days. Wow. Yeah. Impressive. Jeez. And uh, I was reading too a little like essay he wrote about being a literary star. And he was saying that there was some, there was like one really bad review for HMS Ulysses saying that it was like, it kind of like, it defiled like the Royal Navy. It just seemed like it was written by like a stuck up, you know, a-hole. And he's like, you know, ever since then, I don't, I don't care about reviews and I don't read reviews. So, um, huh. so that, this just short takes, story just takes one bad review. 
one bad review can turn you off to literary criticism for a lifetime, <laughs> I'm sure. So the the Dillis, uh, just as a short story, I'd recommend it. It's it's hard to find online. I got it in a, a short story collection called The Lonely Sea, and it, it's a pretty short story. It's written with this um, this Scotch dialect, like it, okay. the, the voice he uses in it is really good. And I, you know, I don't know anything about the other short stories that were submitted to this competition, but to me, what impressed me was. You know, this this guy who is a, at that, that time technically an amateur writer in the sense that he wasn't, you know, being published and paid. It was th- that part of it alone was very uh, impressive. But then again, it was being published in Scotland. So it's not like, you know, <laughs> maybe they were maybe that's not why they thought it was so good. But it's a, it's a story of heroism set on the sea. Basically, there's a storm um, and there's a ferry stuck out on this lake. And it's about the the rescue effort to to go out and rescue the people on the on the ferry. Huh. I'll have to I'll have to see if I can find it and give it a uh, a read. Yeah, I I I'll I can scan it and send it to you uh, at some point, but the book we're going to talk about today is Where Eagles Dare. And it that title is taken from William Shakespeare's Richard III. And this is oh. uh, in Act 1, Scene 3. The world has grown so bad that wrens make prey where eagles dare not perch, so that's where it takes its title from. It's a good, it's huh. a good title because it takes place at a high altitude. It was published in 1967. Uh, I read this Harper Collins reprint. It's it's a nice looking book with big, uh, big text. Good for actual dad readers who have bad vision. Um, oh, like the it. large text version that yeah. with it is available at the library. Maybe I don't know. We'll have to see if it's Probably. part of the checklist. But uh, yeah, did you? What did you? Did you do an audiobook or? Yeah, I, I'll, as as usual, it's just the quickest way I can get through books. Um, but the 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 reader for it was fantastic. Uh, I have to look up who it was, but uh, the audiobook version is really good. I highly recommend it. Uh, very compelling. The book itself is uh, it doesn't slow down. Like it it. I mean, we'll get into what the plot is, but I, I would say like. Once they're at the location they're headed to, the book doesn't stop. No. There's a little bit of downtime leading up to that. Uh, there's like a real cool, like, um, um, like a bar scene, but even, even the bar scene has some really good tension in it. But I would say like after, after they go to the, like their secondary location, it gets like intense and doesn't stop. It's pretty cool. Yeah. You, you I, I feel pretty much the exact same way. My overall impression was it's very thrilling. There was this kind of point that lagged for me where um, characters are kind of just running between buildings and like being very careful. And it went on a little to the point where I was like, all right, I, you know, this started off really good. It looked like it was going to keep going. But now it's it's a little too like claustrophobic. I hope they like leave this location and, and they do. So that was like the only kind of critique in terms of like what I didn't enjoy about it. But so the, I found an image of the, um, what I believe is the UK first edition and, um, we'll put it up on our Instagram and the, there's the, several really good covers to this. I looked them up as well. Yeah. Th- this one, I like it for obvious reasons. <laughs> Do you have it in the drive? It, well, it's, it's, yeah, it's in the notes here. Um, it's got, here, uh, a Nazi, uh, like officer's cap 
and oh that one the one that you shared with me it's resting on get the hell out of here yeah machine pistol there it is the word of the week the word of the month whatever (laughs) word of the year (laughs) yeah there's a lot of schmeisers connor connor will not shut up about schmeisers and it's gotten to the point of an inside (laughs) joke where anytime anything that we're watching separately or together has something mentioned the schmeiser i've got to like hit him up and be like there's a mention of schmeisers well there's schmeisers and there's a sten gun in this um, there is which there is actually is. pretty important to the plot the sten gun um so uh yeah there's also some cool um covers of, with illustrations of this cable car there's a, a cable car is like important in this also important to note actually is that this was made into a really popular movie i think it came out in 1969 but when alistair mclean was writing the book at the very same time he was writing the screenplay for this movie and it Ooh. was um and both were commercially successful the the movie i haven't seen it it looks cool it's got richard burton and clint eastwood starring in like yeah I, I saw that clint eastwood was in it that has me really interested who does who's in it clint eastwood oh, that, yeah. I, I, I saw the um when i was looking up the uh book art i found the like movie poster and stuff and i was like oh this looks interesting before we get into the plot i just wanted you know one more thought on this is that I've read only a handful of McLean books, but I was reading some reviews and some writing about him, and I was reading some reviews of a book by him I enjoyed called River of Death, which is set on the Amazon River, and it's about these people going to, you know, to this location in Brazil to find this Nazi treasure. It's good because they take a hover, like a very like high-tech hovercraft down the Amazon River. And this one critic was saying, I guess Alistair McLean is like, writes like juvenile brain, brainless, you know, uh, thrillers now, you know, River of Death is like that. It's an action adventure, but I'm like, well, so what? I mean, it's, it's whatever, who cares? But, but Where Eagles Dare is a bit more sophisticated than the other books I read by him. And that there's a lot of like, aha moments. There's some twists and turns and some, there's like, there's a lot of like thought and plotting to it. This book is, if I had to put it in like a dadlit subgenre, you know, obviously it's a World War II thriller. If I had to put it in a sub subgenre, it is a World War II mission story. It's about the execution of a mission. Is that a subgenre that I'm not aware of? Well, um, yeah, I would say, and you know, here's the kind of cool thing too. I was, I want to after we go over it, I want to talk about compare this book to The Eagle Has Landed because. Yeah, I also I also have a comparison to draw. But because some, go on. some mission novels focus on the uh, logistical preparation for it. This book just jumps into the deep it end. It drops you right in. And in yep. fact, part of the plot is that at least like you're told like this mission was thrown together at the last second. Yeah, I was going to say there is some lo- there is some logistical stuff at the tail end instead of front loading the logistics like um uh, the eagle has landed. Uh, this one holds it back uh, until you have a full understanding of the mission that they just like carried out. Yeah, and you get like uh, doses of like, oh, okay, th- so this isn't about what I think. It yeah, is. Oh, okay. exactly, exactly. And it's revealed slowly. Um, I would almost, I would almost also put this into the genre of spy literature. Yeah, I mean it's a spy thriller for sure. It's funny as p- I, I, I lifted a couple of quotes from this for our spy episode. And I wasn't expecting that. Like I started listening to this and I immediately – there's like a quote like pretty early on in the book. I'm like, oh, that's good. And like there's uh, a female character that's like 
her first like mission and she's supposed to do this whole like spy uh like section of the plan and it's really cool to like see that play out yeah yeah there's a it, it is i mean there's one of the dadlet checklist items and we'll get to that later is multiple moles and boy oh yep. boy yeah just I mean, got it i was thinking that too when when uh before i even like looked at your notes when i was like finished the book and told you that i was ready to record i was like okay this is definitely one that we don't get to check that often but this is had this has it so let this this seems like a good time to start the summary. So this, this book takes place in 1944, and it opens it opens midair. <laughs> so you're on an airplane, and it's written in third person. Um, we meet a unit of commandos of, of paratroopers who are all geared up for this secret mission in the Bavarian Alps in southern Germany, and we learn that they're on their way to rescue this American general, General Carnaby whose plane was shot down and he was captured by the Nazis. And he's being held at this, basically for lack of a better word, like a castle. It's described as looking like a castle up in the Alps. It's called the Schloss Adler. And it's, 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 it's isolated. It's like on like almost like a plateau. Sort of. Yeah. The way that they talk about it, it's like a, uh, like a volcanic shelf or something like, yeah. uh, it's like on the very peak of a mountain that I assume is like, been flattened or flat enough to build on and then it's got uh only two ways up a a a number of switchbacks that's on a like a perilous road um and the like centerpiece of the book that's like on all of the covers except for your favorite cover a uh cable car right and there's a village at the base of the mountain that the uh the schloss adler is 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 located and there's barracks down there goes down yeah and then the cable car goes from the village up to the castle so anyways they're trying they're on their way to the schloss adler to which is the gestapo headquarters to rescue general carnaby because he has information he has secret information on operation overlord which they also refer to as the second front which is the um the invasion of of Western Germany by the Allied for by the American forces to re, to retake um, France from the not mm-hmm. the, the Nazi occupation. So they want to extract him before he can basically be tortured and give up the information. And we learn that this information was put together by these two very high ranking British officers, Colonel Turner and uh, Admiral Rowland of MI six. Now, the major characters in this, I'm only going to name three of them. There's, there's yeah, like an ensemble, some kind of an ensemble, I guess. But um, there's Major Smith, who is with the British Special Forces. There's Lieutenant Schaefer, who is the only American like paratrooper, and he is in the American Army, and he's with the OSS, which is the precursor to the CIA. So he's sort of like a soldier spy character. And there's a character named Mary Ellison. Who is this British spy um, who ends up she, – she jumps in with you – know, well, she, not with the paratroopers. She jumps in a little after the paratroopers technically and she's there to go undercover um, in the Schloss Adler as like a – kind of like a maid or like a, a servant. The opening scene is very good. They're on this airplane. It's piloted by – well, there's a pilot and there's a flight commander and there's this character flight commander Carpenter who's in charge of the – the um the flight portion of the mission and he when we when it opens he's in the pilot seat 
they're they're going it's a very bumpy and cold ride but he is the like unflappable british pilot he's this older guy with like a big red beard and red hair and everyone else is like kind of like getting you know uh flight sickness because it's like the plane is bumping around and he's just sitting in his seat he's reading a paperback novel you know what while the plane is flying and that would be me that would absolutely be me like i admire that (laughs) as they get closer to the drop zone um you know the, the weather seems to pick up they're flying through the mountains. Basically, they fly through Switzerland and then they cut into Germany like at the last second and they have to fly through this pretty dangerous, you know, mountain mountain range to get to to where they're going to drop off the troops because and they and they have to drop them off on this like little kind of a like escarpment. It's a, it's a very like narrow, narrow landing zone for them. And so for the final approach, the uh, Commander Carpenter, he hands over the controls to his second in command, who's this younger pilot. And Carpenter just like hangs his head out the window. And that seems to be like his primary navigation strategy is like it says like he can he he knows places by smell. But like frequently in this opening part, he's like putting his head out the window and like looking around. Um, But they end up finding the drop zone. He like Carpenter almost freezes his face off because it's so cold. Um, they're getting really close to the side of the mountain. Like there's a scene that's described where it's like the wingtips are almost scraping the side of the mountain. Um, and actually I wanted to read a, a quote that I thought was kind of funny. So this carpenter is like sort of sarcastic, you know, intelligent, unflappable. And it's his, his like second in command is actually piloting. And he's like telling him like, all right, a little bit closer, a little bit far away. All right, we're almost there. And, um, so he, He's got his head out the window. His pilot is actually like, at this point, his pilot has like slowed the plane down. Um, Carpenter withdrew his head. If he was concerned, no trace of it showed in his face. He resumed his soft whistling, calmly, almost leisurely, scanned the instrument panel, then turned his head to Tremaine. He said conversationally, When you were in flying school, ever hear tell of a strange phenomenon known as stalling speed? Tremaine started, glanced hurriedly at the instrument panel, and quickly gave a fraction more power to the engines. Carpenter smiled. So, I mean, it, it just to, if, if you didn't get what that's about, it's like the, the, the second in command had slowed the plane down too much that it was in danger of stalling. And he just he was like, Did you ever hear of stalling? A weird thing like that? <laughs> yeah. You know, where the plane crashes and everyone dies? <laughs> Anyways, so they, they, uh, they managed to locate the drop zone. Uh, the. The paratroopers jump out. Uh, they have to land on this little outcropping. One guy gets tangled in his parachute, um, and they think he dies from like a, a really rough landing. But after all the commandos jump out, one of the air crewmen on the bomber they were flying in moves aside these boxes, and there's a little lady hiding there. Yep. And he says, okay, now it's your turn. And she jumps out too. And this character's name is Mary Ellison. For the majority of the book, her her involvement or for 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 much of the book, I'll just say, her, she sort of like stays behind. Like the rest of the paratroopers don't even know she's there. She she works yeah, primarily with Major. Like I Smith. said, like I said, she's a spy. Yeah, she's a spy. But it's revealed that her and Major Smith know each other personally, and from the beginning, we we understand that there's some sort of secret plan. This is sort of like the the, the what we were talking about, where McLean is like. There's more to what's going on than than what you think. So, 
And that's, mm-hmm. you know, I think this is the first major part of it is that uh, she's she's sneaking around behind their backs. Uh, well, kind of behind their backs. Um, they land. They're kind of just getting them, themselves together. Major Smith notices that Sergeant Herod, Herod, who's the guy who got tangled in his parachute, he looks a little bit closer at him and is like, you know, I don't think that guy died from a rough landing. It looks like someone bashed his head in. And it was a really like there was a blizzard going on when they landed. So it's very much possible that one of his own people killed Herod for whatever reason. And around this point, too, we also learn very quickly, General Carnaby, the American that they're going to go save, is not General Carnaby. This is very much along the lines of uh, the eagle has landed. It is an right? act, It's an actor. And they have basically they staged his plane crash. So he would in. They intended him to be picked up by the Nazis, so it's an actor. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's an operation to give them false information. Right? Have 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 them interrogate this guy, thinking he's who you know who he says he is. Get the information that they think they want from him, but then have this crack commander unit swoop in and rescue him before that it can be revealed who he really is, so that the false information is believed. Because if they find out that he's an actor, then no one will believe the false information. This reminds me of, of when we were talking about um, the Eagle Has Landed, the Grand Sasso raid in Otto uh, Scorseni. And yep. when they went and rescued um, uh, Benito Mussolini from the from this like mountaintop compound. Um, and you have uh, to wonder if this is inspired by that, but like f- the flip the sides on it. And you know, it's yeah, it's I mean, like the premise is, is the same, but it's. It's much more complicated, but it also makes me wonder is like, well, was Otto Scorzeni in that like some kind of op? Like, was it, were they actually doing something very different? But anyways, so the, the paratroopers, they make it to the village at the base of the Schloss Adler and there, there's a lot of running around and kind of like preparation work. They go to this bar and they're pretty quickly picked up by the Nazis. Like these Nazis, uh, the Gestapo go like walks into their bar and they're like, "There's traitors in here." Well, and like stuff keeps happening. Like they, one of them goes out back, and one of their guys is dead. Yeah, yeah. And and like so, like they're getting picked off one by one. One person on the airdrop in, one person at the bar. So someone isn't who they say they are and knows what like that they're not supposed to be there. So they've got to like figure that out and like like you said at the same time of all this the gestapo show up yeah um and they they um you know i'm doing a very like abbreviated summary like there's details in this that like it makes it makes the book worth reading but i'll give you the just it's really good i i would i out of it's i i hesitate to say this but it might be my favorite thing that we've read for the podcast so far that i hadn't that i hadn't already read like I'll I'll always defer to like Isaac Bell novels by Cussler, but I've already read those. So like reading this for the first time was a really great experience and I recommend it for anybody that has any just slight interest in Dadlet or in like spies or World War II operations. Well what's good is that he's got a lot of other renowned and like celebrated World War II books, so we could we could read more. Like he wrote The Guns of Navarone, which was made into a movie as well. Um, so yeah, and Ice Station Zebra. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one I want to do too. Um, it's fun to say. So I like and I like you said Zebra. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> he uh, he. So what ends up happening is that um, Smith and Schaefer, 
the 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 commanding officer of the mission and the second in command um they get separated from the rest of the paratroopers um, can i just say at this point we can add another subgenre to this go ahead it's it it's almost a buddy cop adventure oh yeah oh i mean and there's because like witty schaefer, ba- banter. schaefer and smith have like great chemistry and like that one's a british man one's an american man they like comment back and forth at each other and jab at each other about that uh it's fun yeah he's also smith is smith is such a a great character he's so much he's so like sarcastic and witty he he has that like yeah like carpenter in the beginning the british like the the hyper competent british characters hyper competent charm they're charming they have a stiff upper lip but it uh, they're not like gritty per se. They're like humorous about it. Um, yeah, yeah. So what happens um, is that the paratroopers, like the the more kind of like lower ranking paratroopers, there's a handful of them at this point. There's actually only three remaining at this point. Get arrested by the Gestapo. They get separated from Smith and Schaefer, and and the narrative uh, follows Smith and Schaefer. Like the the three paratroopers disappear for a while. What ends up happening is that Smith and Schaefer make it up to the Schloss Adler, uh, the the castle you know, on the mountain, and they end up in this room called the Grand Hall. And there they find Carnaby uh, being questioned by these senior Nazis, the Nazi officials, Colonel Kramer, who is deputy chief of the German Secret Service, and Reichsmarshal Julius Rosemeyer, who's the Wehrmacht chief of staff. staff. They're watching them. They're ta- they're talking to Carnaby. They're like, well, if you don't if you don't tell us, we want to know. We're going to have to like take take more intrusive you know uh, measures or means to to get the information. And Smith and Schaefer are watching this like kind of like from like almost like behind a curtain. Just a uh. and then the three paratroopers that were arrested earlier are brought into the room, just as Smith. We learn Smith uh, suspected this. Those three paratroopers are revealed as traitors, that they're actually yep. double agents. They're moles. <gasps> no. And now they're back in the arm. They're back in the arms of the Nazis. Um, and at this point, Smith and Schaefer, who have you know they they have I think one like Schmeiser machine pistol between them and like a Luger handgun, they reveal themselves. They step out of the shadows, and the Nazis are like, "Oh darn." <laughs> Drat. And but then Smith turns the machine gun on Schaefer and tells him, like, you know, put your weapon down. And, you know, yeah. as a reader at this point, you're like, oh, my God, Smith's a bad guy, too. Well, and it it, it works because of all of the lying he's been doing to them. He's like he, he he smuggled this girl on that no one knows about. No one knows what they're really up to. Uh, he's making uh, clandestine jaunts out to use the use the radio, quote unquote. Uh, he's sneaking around. Uh, he knows more than he should. So it definitely it, it it's a good twist. It it works. Like the as a reader, I was, you know, I suspected there might be more to this because there's more to everything in this book. But yeah, it, yeah it everything's works. like a everything's a twist within a twist within a twist. Yeah, you, you're, that's a great point you made though. It's like that that McLean is like everyone's talking. Everyone has like a, a plan that they're not revealing to everyone else. So 
uh, untrustworthy characters, you know? Um, yeah, I think, like, the only person you can kind of rely on is Schaefer. Yeah, yeah. The, um, yeah. I sus- I had suspicions, though, but, you know, by the end, you suspect everyone. So, yeah. um, at this point, so Smith is standing there in front of the Nazi high command, the paratroopers who have revealed themselves as traitors, and the fake General Carnaby. And this is what he says. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm paraphrasing it. Obviously, he doesn't say it like How this. But I'm like containing a lot of like twists and turns. He says, "Hey, I'm actually a Nazi, a Nazi spy, and actually, I'm like one of the best Nazi spies ever. And yeah. let me tell you something: these paratroopers who are telling you that they're Nazi spies, they're not spies. The real Nazi spies that." Um, were captured in England, and these guys are just impersonating the three guys that they're telling you that they are. They are not actually them; um, they're British agents. So, uh, and, and we we also learn at this point that the paratroopers themselves—they're not like grunt soldiers. They're actually later. It's kind of talked about that they're like intelligent. Like they were in in British intelligence, they were like spy runners. You know. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so Smith effectively convinces the Nazi high command that this is the truth, that he's actually a spy. They're not spies. And one of the things he does to do this is he tells the paratroopers like, okay, if you're really Nazi spies, I want you to write down everything you know about the deep cover uh, Nazi intelligence agents working within British intelligence as moles. And about all the other spies working in Western Europe. If you yeah, basic basically, if if you if you claim to be who you say you are, back it up with actions. So yeah, and they do. Uh, well, one of the guys tries to, but he got like hit over the head, so he's kind of like shaky. But he gets like three notebooks of you know of from from all of them with the information. He takes it, puts it in his pocket, and says. Oh, thanks. Thanks for all that, you know, secret information. And he turns his machine gun back on the Nazis and it's like, actually, yeah. <laughs> I was lying. <laughs> there's there's a lot of really good wordplay and discussion in this scene um, between, was it Kramer, the the other German? Yeah, Kramer and Rosemeyer. Yeah, uh, they, they, they have a lot of really good like cross-examination where – Neither one of them is really fully committed to the words of the other, and uh, just as much as um, Smythe, as he is referred to after the reveal, or uh, what? Do, what do they call him? No, it's um, what's his like fake German? It's like Schmidt. Johann. Johann Schmidt. Schmidt. Yeah. So uh, between Johann Schmidt and Kramer, there's a, like just as much as Schmidt or you know Smith is trying to. Um, convince these people that he's a German and that he's trying to convince them that the three that are being interrogated might not be reliable. Uh, at the same time, Kramer and Rosemeyer are trying to do the same thing to Schmidt's story. So like, as he's interrogating the three guys that he flow, flew in with, they're also sort of interrogating him. It's it's fun. It's a really cool scene. It, it, it absolutely is. It reminds me of... Um... You know Quentin Tarantino's uh, *Inglorious mm-hmm. Bastards*, the Spe- bar scene, the bar scene where like yeah, it, and what what it kind of reaffirms for me is that to do this sort of work, 
you need to have like excellent improvisational skills. Like you need to be able to react to a scenario in a creative way um, at the drop of a hat. And frequently, like up to this point, um, a character we mentioned that we haven't talked about, um, Mary Ellison, has like frequently said, like, listen, Smith knows what he's doing. Whatever happens, he'll figure out a way to make it work. And, you know, this is a good example of it is that he kind of comes up with a plan on the spot and it works out great. And yeah, in that bar scene in Inglorious Bastards, it's similar. It's like, you know, you're you're really under the gun and you got to come up with something. So um, it's revealed at this point that um, British High Command had suspected these three paratrooper intelligence officers the the entire time and that yep. this mission um, was kind of the purpose of it was to to. Uh, get this information, uh, which which I have to ask the question: Couldn't have was there not an easier way to do this? <laughs> oh, I, I thought about that too. It's like, okay, hey guys, so we know these guys are spies. Uh, how are we going to expose them? Why don't we take them to their home ground? Like, let's go to their arena um, and expose them there, where there's tons of stuff that could go wrong and everyone could die. <laughs> and I tried to think. I'm like, is there like a more like like legitimate or like clear purpose to this mission that's later revealed. And I'm like, no, it was a, the whole mission was a kind of a way to like out all of these spies, but everyone at once. Yeah. They had to go into enemy territory, like behind and sorry, behind enemy lines. And it's like, that's kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so uh, we mentioned the character, I said Mary Allison, she is the sort of uh, the British spy who gets implanted in the Schloss Adler and she she helps them kind of like infiltrate the, the castle. Um, so at this point, Smith and Schaefer, they escape with the three traitors as prisoners and they also bring Mary and the fake General Carnaby. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, this, this uh, it struck me, I'm like, it's going to be very difficult, like moving three people, like discreetly like out of that castle and wherever you need to go um and it's at at one point as they are boarding the uh cable car to go back down to the village to get to their you know escape point um the three prisoners uh get the jump on schaefer and they they beat him up really bad and um there it looks like they are going to escape on a cable car they're going to go back down to the village and the schloss adler's like burning at this point like they kind of blow up part of it before they leave and um, so the three the three moles are escaping on this uh, cable car, and Smith, you know, it, uh, improv genius that he is, just runs, jumps, and gets on the roof of the cable car. Smooth. And it should be, you know, we should say at this point that he's like shot in the hand, and like his, I think it's like his left hand is like mangled. I just imagined it as uh, his finger is like flapping off. It's it's described as being like pretty pretty awful. Yeah, but what what follows is kind of like the the featured for me what I thought was the featured a- action sequence of the book. Um, he lands well, yeah, on that's, top. It's literally like on the cover of the books. Yeah, this is the cable. This is him making use of the cable car. Um, so yep. he lands on the ceiling. They're shooting up like with their own Schmeiser machine pistol, uh, you know, through the roof at him, and um, he ends up. What he does is well, he kills all of them, and basically what he does is as the cable car is running. Uh, you know, all of the cars are attached to the cable line. So if one car is moving, all cars are moving. Um, yep. And as he's passing the midway point, one car is, you know, ascending while his car is descending. And he plants an explosive on the descending cable car with the bad guys in it. 
jumps onto the other passing cable car and the other one blows up. So all of those guys die. Uh, kind of a, I thought it was a very James Bond type moment, I thought. Yeah, it, all he needed to do is say some sort of witty one-liner, which would not have been out of character for him. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> have a nice trip. <laughs> I don't know. Something like that. I wouldn't be good at it. See, I'd be... <laughs> Like, what? Why is that American man always saying uh, something? Looks like they blew their cover. Yeah, <laughs> that that American man just always says something stupid after he kills someone. <laughs> Anyways, so he he reconnects with Schaefer and company. They make it off the mountain. Um, and this by this point, Smith is really banged up. He gets shot again on top of the cable car. So he's he's you know he, he's very pale and kind of he's fading. Um. And like I said, the description of him using his injured hand is like, it's pretty gross at points. They make it back mm-hmm. to the village. They steal this bus with a snowplow. A chase ensues. They make it across this bridge. They blow up the bridge behind them. And then they're picked up by Carpenter, the the flight commander from before. And he's flying this thing called a Mosquito Bomber, which is like a high-speed, um, smaller bomber that's like, you can fly it low under enemy radar it's very agile and i looked up a picture of it and i have no idea how it basically it says like you know they're they're sitting in the area where it would carry a bomb but i was looking at a picture of it and i'm like you couldn't fit like four people in there like but it, it no it's probably heavily modified or just this is bullshit yeah <laughs> so they're picked up by carpenter the pilot from the beginning and colonel turner is on the plane. He has a Sten gun. Turner, if you remember, is one of the MI6 officers from the beginning who organized this uh, this mission. And, you know, ostensibly, Turner is there to, like, help finish it and, you know, see them home. Um, but once they're up in the air, Turner reveals that he is also a Nazi spy and that he's going to take them to Lille, France. At this time, France is occupied by the Nazis. And... Um, Smith reveals that he suspected Turner all along, and so did Admiral Rowland, the other MI6 officer. This whole mission was to to flush out Turner. <laughs> right. So, and, and he says, like, oh, and by the way, that Sten gun you're holding on me, um, the one that Admiral Rowland gave you, look at the firing pin. Like, I filed it off before I left. Yeah. So, you know, um, so, so there. <laughs> that would be my that would be my american comment it'd be, it'd be like so there <laughs> so <laughs> um so what happens then is turner not wanting to like be taken prisoner just like jumps out of the airplane and kills himself well there's also a really good one of my favorite points of the book and it's like a small detail that you don't realize at first is um it's like hey uh I've got this notebook here that has all of these names on it. And the guy's like, oh, that's great. And he throws it out the, the window. And he's like, haha, now you don't have anything. Now you don't have any proof. And he's like, well, luckily, I have two more. Yeah, that, that was – that's kind of... <laughs> Always make copies. <laughs> well, because he had all three of them make that list. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's just funny that he had all three. We, we know he has all three. And this guy is just like, haha, destroyed your evidence. Also, I would think that Smith could commit most of that information to memory. So I'd just be like, well, I know it's okay, fine. But either way, you know. Well, like, being, being a hyper-competent male protagonist, I know he has eidetic memory. Right, right. Well, this is basically the end of the book. Um, Smith calls up uh, Roland on, the, and it's like, you know, yeah, we did it, yay! Uh, I want to marry, uh, I want to marry Mary, by the way. And um, 
you know, him and Mary are going to get married. Uh, and that's about it. That's the end. It, it uh, you know, there's another character, Heidi, who's a, a, a spy implanted in the castle. And Schaefer has been uh, sexually harassing her the entire, you know, the, the, the last end of yep. the book, basically. But then she agrees to go on a date with him, you know, as this things happen in that, the, that time of history. The, the closing line of this book is so weird. Right. What exactly is it? Like, they're going to go to the Savoy Grill or, or you know, yes. So Schaefer's from Montana uh, and she says they're going to go to this place and have dinner together. And um, he's like, yeah, we'll have some good steaks. And she says, uh, more like a sirloin of horse meat because of like war rationing, obviously. Yeah. And he says, honey, Schaefer took her hands and spoke severely and earnestly. Honey, don't ever again mention that word to me. I'm allergic to horses. You eat them? Heidi gazed at him in astonishment. In Montana? I fall off of them. Schaefer said moodily, everywhere. And that's it. That's the end of the book. In a way, I, I'm like, if I understand that correctly, and I kind of have to like make myself do that, I'm like, oh, it's kind of like I fall off of them. Like, like I get into trouble everywhere. You know, that's kind of what I took it to mean. But I don't know. Maybe it maybe it hit better with like nineteen sixty seven audiences. Yeah, I don't know. It maybe it has some sort of reference to something that we don't know or uh, whatever. So that's the end of the but book. Yeah, it's it's a great book. The we're we're underselling it. We definitely breezed through this, which is good because normally our our summaries drag. Deadlit. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Here he is, at the Schloss Adler, the Castle of the Eagles. Believe me, it's well known, because only an eagle can enter it. Our job is to get inside there and get him out as soon as possible. Major Belkoda, my adjutant. Read on, go! Colonel Weissner, field security. Major von Harpen, Gestapo. Allow me to introduce myself. Major Johann Schmidt, SS Military Intelligence, Stuttgart. Richard Burton. Take your clothes off. Don't argue. Take your clothes off. Hello? Clint Eastwood. Now, with McPherson dead, there's only five of us left. So you either let me know what's going on, or there's only going to be four. company that brought you The Dirty Dozen, and the author who gave you The Guns of Navarone, Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood. Lieutenant, drop that gun. What? Drop that gun and sit down. What the hell are you talking about? Where eagles dare. selling the 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 expert execution of action and suspense like this book does that very well all of the action scenes are really good 
Um, there's several really cool getaways. There's several really cool tricks that are played on other characters. Um, there's lots of subterfuge. It's really fun involving the castle and like the interplay of um, uh, Mary behind the scenes, helping them get to the castle and out of the castle and her getting found out. Like there's a bunch of real, real cool stuff in this book. Right. Um, and, and the joy is like there's there's pleasure in those aha moments. But like it's it is a I don't think we've like essentially like ruined the book. If, if you now want to read it and you know some of the bigger you know plot points like it is just a fun action adventure that, that has like a good yep. story to it as well. I wanted to talk about like very quickly like themes. It, it, sometimes it's hard to talk about themes with these books because they're so like straightforward and whatever they do reflect on they do it quickly but one one thread I, I i saw through this was this idea of like gentlemanly warfare and honor and you see characters who are uh enemies showing courtesies to each other uh the american character schaefer um frequently there's like the buddy cop banter about how Schaefer has a short fuse and he'd rather just shoot these people. But Smith is like, no, ha 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 Americans with a short fuse. Yeah. They're violent. Smith frequently takes pains not to kill people. In fact, there's one point where like he remembers he had this Nazi, like a uh, uh, soldier tied up somewhere. And he's like, Oh, he'll burn to death if I leave him there. So he runs up, risks his own life to like move this guy. So he doesn't die. And the, yep. the Nazi high command also has a somewhat, gentlemanly approach to how they handle people um you know even uh i'm thinking more of uh, admiral or general carnaby they're like fairly civil with him they sit him down or like they talk to him and you know there, there are brutish characters in this certainly but there's a sense of um honor and decorum which actually ties back i think a little bit to um uh the eagle has landed and that when we talked about like the soldier as like um, ontological category where it's like there's the ethics and the the, um, the almost the reality of life as a soldier. The reality of the material world as a soldier is different and that you follow these secret rules, you know, no synchron no mention of synchronicity in this one. No, but they're, they're, they're kind of uh, there, there's no mention of it, but there could have been. So there's like this idea of like honor amongst enemies, you know, people who are enemies, Um, you know, it all getting back to the idea of like, what is this mission about? I almost wonder if it's like, listen, we have some raw ingredients here. You know, if the, Mm -hmm. the, 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 the admiral is like, we have some raw ingredients here and I can't tell you, I can't suss this thing out. I can't say he's going to go there, talk to that guy. Then he's going to get these guys to do this. but. If we take a very resourceful person and put them in a chaotic situation, something's going to happen. You know, kind of like a roll the dice. Like maybe we will get something out of this. Like, is well, that is- like taking taking them taking double agents to their boss more or less and letting them just reveal themselves is pretty smart as long as you can be there to catch them. Right, and it's like, and I don't know how we're going to do that, but. I'll leave that to like the more on the ground people, you know. Yeah, yeah. So one one thing I enjoyed about this book is the increasing like desperation intention and how McLean conveys this. At the beginning, you have the characters being very clever and somewhat cautious, but by the end, repeatedly there are instances where Smith has to say something like, 
we have no choice right now but to take this very risky option. Um, for example, they, they, they're, they're climbing out of the Schloss Adler and they have this rope they've thrown out a window and they're not sure it's long enough. And Smith says something like, well, it's going to have to be long enough because that's all we've got. Um, mm-hmm. And it, you, there's, I just thought that there was this sense of the, the things were narrowing and accelerating throughout the book and that's you know certainly common in thrillers i just i just thought that mclean did that very well but it's done it's yeah i was gonna say it's done very well here uh it's a it's a very tight story um every all of the reveals are done in a really good order like you're always left guessing you're always left wondering uh the action always has good payoff uh nobody feels untouchable you're always worried for the characters which is a good um aspect like you don't get that in series like the dirk pitt series you're not going to kill off dirk pitt so even if you really mangle him up good you know he's going to survive so it's it's nice when you have these books that aren't necessarily part of a series where you have no idea who's going to die and because you have those buddy cops one of them could get killed and the story could still go on you could hypothetically kill both of them and just have mary and heidi survive like so because of that um they're vulnerable they're expendable and as a reader that's scary because you don't know who's gonna die um even if they even if they all get out of it like they do in this it still adds good tension to it um I I there I hate false tension. I hate when someone like, hey, we know this character is going to survive because X, Y, or Z reason, but let's make the audience think that we're going to kill them. No, we know that they're going to survive. Don't waste our time. You see, I I sometimes I'm bothered by that, but sometimes I can kind of like allow myself. I can to- buy I can buy it for the the sake of a story. If a bad guy's gonna kidnap james bond of course they're going to torture james bond they're not going to not do that but like there's ways to do it that's believable and there's ways to do it where i know they're just pulling my leg and it's like there has to be some legitimate stakes like the like the oh the hero just fell off a cliff no he didn't he's holding on to it like (laughs) we know what's going to happen or oh the plane went down no it isn't it's going to pull up at the last minute and sail over the edge of the the mountain like we know what's going to happen like there's those things that they do in movies and in books that just like are very obvious. So it's like, why do you even attempt them still? Yeah. Um, and this book doesn't do that. No, and no. It I I and that was one of my big gripes about um, Eagle has landed is that like the first chapter pretty much spoils the book in that we know something happened, we know that it failed, we know that these characters died we know that uh this guy is back here talking to this village about it we don't know all the details but we we pretty much know what the conclusion is well and you then, shouldn't be so certain about that because if you've read the the eagle has flown you might you no, know. get out of here get, get out of here get out of here so uh i will read it one day but uh my point is like when you're reading that book as a standalone regardless of any follow-ups um a lot of the tension is torpedoed right away from that first chapter. And then uh, we see it all play out. And then it's worse than you expected because the book has no purpose because everything that they were sent there to do is a lie because uh, Winston Churchill was an actor the whole time and they don't even kill the actor. So it's like 
nothing really happens. I got a big gripe about that when we did that review that the whole book was pointless. Well, this is the exact opposite of that. Even though it's the same setup, this is a group of commandos going in by airplane to infiltrate a small town of the enemy to uh, steal an actor and get him out of the way instead of killing him. But uh, the original mission in Eagle has landed was to kidnap him. So like, once again, this is this, the same setup just with the protagonists being good guys and having bad guys on the team rather than bad guys and having good guys on the team. Like it's literally a flip of the script and it's carried out so much better. It has so much more mystery and nuance to it. Um, I, I, if I were to re- refer to both of those books and to suggest one to someone, I would suggest this one. I wouldn't suggest Eagle has landed. Well, it's funny because the, in my, my notes here, the big question I wanted to ask was like, which one's better? Which one do you like more? Um, I think you knew that. I think you, I mean, yeah. you were going to ask it anyway, but yeah. I think you knew that from just how I responded to this when I For finished sure. reading it. I thought you might like this more. I'm, I'm thinking if Jack Higgins did this, like the majority of the book would be everything that happened before the mission. It would be how they found out that the people were – the three guys were spies. It would focus on yeah, all that. Yeah, you'd go into it. You'd go into it knowing who was a spy, which would also have its own intrigue to it because then you'd, you'd get to see all the maneuvering and lying to each other and know right up front like who's lying. Yeah. So there would be its own little like intrigue to that. But I like yeah. this much better as you don't know who's who and it's paranoid. I love paranoid things. You should know this about me by now. Hateful Eight, <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the the Thing, like The Thing's one of my favorite movies because it's all paranoia and you never know who's who they are. The the This whole book would be the third act of Jack Higgins' novel. Not that Jack Higgins' novels yeah. are boring, but he would he would spend more time like in – in um west in, western in the, europe in, the, the, in england and yeah everything. the logistics would be part one the second part would be getting the team together mm-hmm. and like briefing them and training them and then this would be act three yeah uh, agreed yeah you wouldn't you wouldn't the uh carnab uh roland and smith and them working together would be like the main the main storyline um okay so you you like this better than uh the eagle has landed i have to say i i liked this book a lot I think it's useful to compare them. It is like we said; it's interesting to see the way, like what th- uh, here we spy go. thriller novels fix. Here we go. I love. Uh, are you a little bit biased because you read the rest of the Devlin series? Well, do you just really like? Well, I mean, to be fair, like Devlin is such a compelling character, and I there are compelling characters in this, but not for me, not as much as Liam Devlin. Also, I think. But I, think but that, I ask you again. I ask you again. Let's just off of the. Just Eagle has landed, not the rest of the series, not knowing what you know in in sort of uh, meta knowledge of the character. Just based off of these two books, which one would you pick? Uh, the Eagle has landed. The Eagle has landed. Ah, Connor, I'm going to have to fight you. Well, let me let me let, this is sort of this is what I'm about to say is more general. But I was thinking about like why um, thrillers. Uh, get a little bit of like disrespect, like they're not literature, and like why? And 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 you know, I've been reading a lot of thrillers, and then I'll read like more like capital L literature, and it's like okay, things are different. You know, there are different books. It's not like they're all the same. But um, what what I've kind of my theory, and it's it's I'm sure there's a lot wrong with it, but here's I'll try and <laughs> try and make this short. Is that 
if if writing if the idea of like creative writing is and good creative writing is to take um experiences and emotions and complex things in life um and translate them and help people understand them better via the written word um thrillers are don't contain much of that thrillers are more mimetic and expository they they more describe like physical movements action and and also like you know the uh conspiracies and things like that but they're not really concerned that much with translating the complex emotional state of the world into the written word and helping readers cope with the complex emotional state of the world you know through the book I guess, but they they can. They can, like, and I think out, the eagle has landed. Their... Has, does that? I think the eagle has landed. Does that in a in a good in an interesting way and in a measured way, um, a very balanced way, balancing the action and the interesting the, the, the sort of like interesting. Uh, there is there is a lot more um, to say. An eagle has landed about uh, ethics and human morality. condition, and you know those, those yeah, big things. especially with the especially with the um what people are willing to do and uh like how alliances are drawn and whatnot like i'm thinking about the scene with the sourcing the guns and vehicles from like the mob and like whether it's like right to shoot and kill them in those certain scenes uh like how far are you willing to go to to do what you're here to do for people that you don't care about yeah there's there's not much moral complexity to this story no Um, this one is very very straightforward really the only moral complexity is what you said which is about like one character's personal qualms about harming people that's just one character and and i thought and it's kind of funny too because like i was saying they're carrying those they're they're dragging around those three prisoners and i'm like you know that's a that's a like 10,000 pound weight around your neck to like escape this place with these three guys who are not going to cooperate. I was just like, you're not going to cooperate and they're going to actually try to undermine you every step of the way. I would just be like, all right, sorry, kid, just shoot them all and be like, we got what we needed. And like, I, we got to get out of here. So that's why I like, I like the Eagle has landed bitters. I think it, it, it's not, I, I, I see your reasons now and I respect it. I still prefer this book. I, I think this book is much, uh, more exciting though it's 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 definitely like a i mean you could read the eagles landed in a weekend too but this is a great like exciting okay beach read i'll, I'll flip I'll, I'll i'll take something you said earlier and i'll throw it back at you in a way that will satisfy both of us give me the eagle has landed written by mclean Give me all of the things that I have grief about taken out. So instead of having that front chapter where you have everything spoiled for you, take that out. Uh, start this mission sooner and have some like allusions to the prep and everything uh, and have a much more exciting suspense and action in it. And I think I would prefer the other book more. You know what? You know how this would I'm trying to I'm thinking, you know, how McLean would do The Eagle Has Landed is it would be. We would get introduced to Steiner as a British paratrooper. Like we would only learn that he's German later. Like that's you know, like he would, he, we would, yeah. we would meet him and his people in the village, and 
be under the impression that they're British, and then we would learn along with everyone else that they're German. That would be so much fun, though. Like the little, the little like slips and mistakes that they make, being really suspicious and like trying to figure out what's really going on. That would be so much more fun than, hey, I'm at this grave site where this thing happened, and here's everything that happened. Now I'm gonna tell you about it. What 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 I would say though, the benefit of like Higgins is like you see all this stuff like as it as it's played out within the the government and the officers planning things in Alistair McLean, this all happens like off screen off the page and is like referred to as like happening in the past and it works it but but you just you kind of like take it for granted that these conversations had already happened you know that that and you don't get to see um the process of them figuring out these guys are spies like before the mission so um, sure. Okay. Another question. This one's a little bit more fun. Um, Steiner or Smith? Uh, oh, Smith. Okay. So my question was going to be like, one, who wins in a fight? Two, who Ooh. who do you like better, I guess, as a character? I like Smith better, but I think Steiner wins. In a, in a combat think, situation? Think, yeah. I think, I think Smith is the much more cunning and clever. I think Steiner is the much more um, cutthroat. For sure, yeah. Steiner does seem to he, – he's not, like, mean to his colleagues, but he does seem to have, like, a pretty, like, you know, meanness. Like Straightforward He, he, he can approach. summon a yeah. meanness. Um, I like Steiner better, too, mostly for the reasons that I like the other book better. Is I think he's sort of a – he's a more complex character. Um, and in uh, The Eagle Has Flown, you kind of get to know him a little bit more. I really like that book. I wanted to send it to you, but I'm like, I don't want to send you all these like, here's the Liam Devlin books, Chris. Like, I, you know, it's like, I, you know, I, I don't have much space on my shelves e- either. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm just going to audio book then. Oh, okay. Then don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> the Eagle Has Flown is good. I've said it before. It's a little like, the, it, it hits, the, it has like the same rhythm in, in as the, the, where uh, the Eagle Has Landed. Like in in you might think of it as a little a repeat of it, but it has some other good stuff. Okay, let's do this. Uh, let's do the dad lit rating. So as far as this thing goes, is as a piece of dad lit, like how dad litty is it? I mean, if we're doing this before the checklist. Well, let's do the checklist first. That's a good idea. Okay, let's do the checklist first, so I have some some better uh, understanding of how many how many checks how many boxes so this can be a a, a data boxes it checks there we go that's proper a data-driven decision (laughs) okay let's go through this hyper competent male protagonist a hundred percent two of them um character with signature item no no uh signature weapon or vehicle i'd say yes the cable car i mean interesting i wouldn't have counted that as a vehicle but yeah sure it's like a signet it's it's um, yeah okay uh hen- it's signature to the book 100 percent. yeah henchman i think yeah i think yes there's there's a hierarchy here there's like the high command and then there's like the sort of still high ranking but lower officers who are well i would even i would even consider the other double agents on their team as henchmen oh yeah one of them is described as being like that i think you know mclean meant this humorously but he's like he's a um He's a, a relative of uh, Leif Erikson, the Viking. Or, or is, it, is it Leif yeah. Erikson? Uh, um, uh, uh, elite fighting force. Um, yeah, I would say yes. How uh, on both sides? The I think oh, the, yeah. the Alpen Corps. 
up in core. Yeah. Um, technician class characters. Uh, I don't think so. Yes, the dogs. I'm kidding. The Doberman Ventures. There is a technician class character, the helicopter um, Oh, yes. And it's he is so technician class that he has his own technician class uniform. And room. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Pencil-necked bureaucrats. I don't think so. I don't really... There's like bureaucratic no. like structures in this, but no one like maybe the maybe the main the main Turner maybe, but no. Yeah, I wouldn't. I I don't think so. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Check I don't give off. it that. Um, president as character. Uh, no, no. I don't think they even mention. I think they mention like I don't know. All right. Uh, cameos of famous historical figures. Um, was Ad- I feel like I should have like looked this up before, no. but was Admiral Carnaby? I, I think he was a real person, but. Was yeah, it? but this isn't the real Admiral Carnaby, so it doesn't matter. Okay, Texans. Now we can't check this box, but he's from Sh- Wait. Schaefer's from Montana, and he he has oh, like that's a, right, that's right, that's right, that's right. Yeah, he yeah, has yeah, like yeah, a yeah. Texan. Right. He has the qual like a cowboy quality to him, especially as an American amongst British people. He's like very like rough around the edges. Um, I would have liked to have seen Montana. I would have. <laughs> um, competency shift. No, I think Heidi retains her competency even in dangerous situations. I think Mary gets more competent as the book goes on. And I don't think either of our our male buddy cops lose competency. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't give it that one. Misogyny, racism, and other outdated modes of thinking. Um, Yes. Well, I mean, there is Nazism in this, but I, I always take that to mean like the author kind of reveals their own prejudices there's also sexual harassment in the workplace the whole book oh yeah okay yeah that's fair <laughs> enough um okay excessive smoking i don't remember no I, I can't there's there's a few i remember a description of someone of like a nazi smoking someone lighting a, up but i don't yeah that's no, yeah. not excessive um so there's no. a description of a nazi smoking a cigarette and it has a long ash on it and his car gets like spun around but he still has that cigarette ash like but excessive drinking yes um yeah there's excessive drinking i mean it's funny too because when smith first reveals himself or like fake reveals himself and it's like i'm actually the nazi like he proceeds to drink like three glasses of very expensive brandy and like he helps himself to it as if that's as if that's supposed to prove it yeah i think he was just... i guess it's supposed to show how relaxed he is in that setting that if he if he was uh lying that he wouldn't be drinking that much i guess i don't know and it's another kind of like connection to inglorious bastards where it's just like the the like well listen you know if we're if that's good brandy i have to have a glass you know it's sort of like a he, he has an appreciation for fine liquor um gratuitous or cold war context no gratuitous sex scenes no nope. salvage operation no no fails the bechdel test I don't think it does necessarily. No, I think Heidi. I think Heidi and Mary have a legitimate conversation. There's also like the headmistress or whatever of like the Schloss Adler who like is abusive towards the other women, and they they talk to each other. So, um, yeah, I think it would be fine. Villain monologue. Yes. Yes. Uh, at the end, the the yep. Mi six. One hundred percent Turner. Villain anti monologue. I'm going to say yes. What's your reasoning? Because I'm I'm open to this, but I'm I'm fle- I'm like really bending it here, but Smith's whole like 
explanation of why he's of how he's the spy and like wouldn't if i was a spy you know if i was british why would i do x y and z like i think that kind of is in the same spirit of of what we're talking about here so i'm gonna say yes What, what do you say i'll accept it yeah i'll accept that okay breezy scientific or technical exposition they explain like a little bit about how the helicopter functions. They explain some things. There's a cable car a little bit. Uh... It's not very technical though. It's like it's not aimed. No, it's not I wouldn't. To... I wouldn't give it. Yeah. No. Uh, non-fictional framing device. No. Nuclear warheads. No. Multiple moles. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean that's the whole story here. Um, experimental technology. No. Gun porn. No. Yes. Well, really? They, I maybe not yes, gun porn, but they, they do talk about the Schmeisers. They do talk about the Sten gun briefly. Um, they talk about what the soldiers are carrying in, in certain situations. Okay. You know, I think, yeah, I guess that's, it, it doesn't go as hard as like Frederick Forsyth. It doesn't go as hard as like a Reacher novel. It doesn't tell you like the, the, the PSI of like a, the, you know, of the bullet, you know, moving through true, the True. It's the, it, true. I, okay. Yeah. I'll back, I'll back that off. But they don't ever talk about like the capabilities of the guns and stuff. So yeah. They, they do. When they talk so, about the Sten gun and the firing pin like that, you know, that's a little. But that's that. I wouldn't count that. That's, okay. that's explanation for the sake of uh, the scene rather than just talking about the gun okay but we uh, no no on the checkbox but there's certainly some like you know gun enthusiasm here vehicle porn yeah no i don't think so well maybe the cable car it doesn't get it well the vehicle the vehicle porn is like i'll I'll say no i'll say no even if they're talking about like the mosquito bomber or the plane at the beginning i don't think they again for this it's just um used for setting a scene rather than like uh exploiting it because like th- what we're really talking about here it, why we use the slang porn uh for those that don't understand what we're talking about when we say gun porn and uh vehicle porn is the like uh over explanation over display exploitation of said things so like i can just have a gun or i can like really focus on talking about its capabilities and how it is and how it functions and like really like almost like advertising it that is like the over appreciation of the thing yeah same thing with like a car it's excessive uh, i would say vehicle porn would really be like talking about how the the red paint job makes it shine when it comes around turns and things like that where it's making it sexy yeah okay then we're not then fair enough um next one is helicopters yes there's a helicopter in it um there is yeah so, submarines no submarines no okay now going on to more structural elements does it does the book include maps illustrations or diagrams in the first edition uh i don't have to lean on you on that I, I don't believe it does there's none in my edition okay chapters include location and or date and timestamps. no um no. author photo includes one or more of the following hawaiian shirt aviator sunglasses navy ball cap antique car or dog no he is in a leather jacket and is kind of like lounging, but that's not on the checklist. Um, is there a large print version at your library? Is it checked out? Okay. Maybe I want maybe Yes, because you have it. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that the Alistair McLean books, the, 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 the most recent run of them, the HarperCollins ones, are printed in like a large, larger print version. So it's like they're just not even like – they know their audience. 
they're not giving them an option. They're like, you know, <laughs> we'll just give you, you're going to get the large print anyway. So let's just do everything in large print. Um, okay. Uh, is it part of a series? It is not. Does the text include a teaser for the author's next book? This one that you hate. Um, mine it does it. Mine includes advertisements for the author's next for the author's other books and quotes, like I said, from Lee Child and Jack Higgins. So I feel like I'll I'll accept those. I will not accept your normal reasoning of like here's a couple of pages of the next book. I don't accept that because once again, Harry Potter does that. Other books do that. I do think having dadlit authors uh, review it or leave blurbs yeah. is more more akin to what you're expecting from a dadlit book. Let's add that to the checklist then. It's like a another dadlit author blurb, like recommends yeah blurb it. by fellow dadlit author yeah. Okay, so we checked we checked some not not a ton of boxes, but yeah, but... I, that's definitely going to affect my score. I'll, I'll give it. Not based on how much I like the book, based on how dadlit it is. I would only give it 60 white sneakers out of 100. And I'll throw in um, uh, one well-trained German dog. Okay. That's not very high. Um, No. I'm going to rate it actually really high. And I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm... not so much based on the dadlit checklist, but for for the reason that it's a World War Two novel, um, it's action oriented. This is also a little unfair. It was made into a movie with Clint Eastwood in it as as a soldier, as like a gritty American. To me, like it has to be high ranking dadlit on those terms alone. Again, again, I will. I'm going to agree with you and maybe bump my score up a little bit. I didn't even think about the influence of it. Um, think about how many books and movies after this uh, feature a mountaintop castle or mountaintop fortress. So uh, like yeah. a lot of James Bond, but I don't know when those were written compared to this. I think that, that, I don't... that like Honor Majesty's Secret Service would have come up before this. Yeah, but but like I said, like there's a lot of books like Honor Majesty's Secret Service, the book has a mountaintop castle but on her majesty's secret service the movie has a cable car mm-hmm. i i th- like yeah there's there's and and think of how many other bond movies feature cable car fortresses like three of them do um the uh moonraker has one with the scene with jaws uh on her majesty's secret service has one and then also um what is it called it's i always get these mixed up i think it's for your eyes only yeah for your eyes only has one so like it's i think this is probably what introduced people to the idea of cable car action scenes yeah if you if you consider like clive cussler like the the china white of of dadlet um then this then this has to rank high because it is the influence for all that and it doesn't check as many boxes but the boxes it checks, like it does. I'll bump it up ten. I'll give it seventy white sneakers yeah. and a German dog. It, this is this is sort of foundational for the 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 Clive Cussler sort of style of. Uh, even though this one isn't about like anything nautical, but it, it you know this author inf- influenced Clive Cussler. I'm going to give it ninety glasses, Ooh. ninety snifters of expensive uh, Napoleon cognac. And a 
a mangled uh, left hand gripping a greasy cable car uh, cable, <laughs> which is pretty high. Let me tell you. That's gruesome. I know. Well, okay. Overall rating. How much did you like this as a book? Quite a bit. Like I said, I would recommend this to people just in general, not even just as dadlet. Yeah, same. I I mean, if, if if someone was looking for like an exciting, if someone asked me like, do you know? I don't think this is like, yeah, I was gonna say, I don't think this is like masterpiece literature. Right. I don't think it's like, uh, I don't think it's as well written as like Moby Dick or Woman in White. And I don't think it's as like sweet or emotional as like a, a Neil Gaiman book. But um, if, if, like you said, if someone's looking for an action, I would recommend this. Oh yeah. Action or adventure. I would say this, you're, you're going to love it. Um, so I, overall rating as like, and again, I'm not, I'm not rating it as like, is like, is this one of the great, great novels of British literature? It's like, is this a good book? Yeah. I'd say it's a great, it's a very good, well-written book. Um, that's got twists and turns. And it's it's really satisfying as an action adventure novel in a World War II context, and it has some really memorable characters as well. So you know, in that regard, speaking of characters, yeah, speaking of characters, who would you want to play them? Yeah, let's cast off here. Um, so, Major Smith, I I, I I'm doing do I'm doing the Chris Ludwig style of uh, I, I'm oh you're changing the decade. I'm kind of imagining if this was like early '80s, like like the, the, the ages of people. And I'm exciting. I'm excited. I w- I I only have one casting that I couldn't do because he's already dead. So I would have had to have done that, but I didn't this time. This time I cast it as a modern movie. These are all these are all younger um, versions of like the, the as the the actors that they are now. So they're like more youthful. So okay. So Major Smith, you, I said, have for uh, Anthony Hopkins. Oh, interesting. Okay, and he plays young Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, he, yeah. he plays. Uh, there's there's a there's a book and a movie by uh, you know there's a book by Alistair MacLean that was made into a movie uh, when eight bells toll, and he plays the protagonist in that movie. Um, but I just think that you know a charming, intelligent, young you know young British actor who could do some action. He could absolutely do the witty wordplay yeah. and the um, lying. Okay. How about you? Um, so I cast Ben Barnes. Ben Barnes uh, was in that Punisher TV show, and he was also in Westworld season one. Um, he's like the asshole best friend in Westworld season one. Um, he, in a lot of the stuff I've seen, it has an American accent, but he's actually British. And like he's recently done like T-Mobile ads where he has the British accent. Um. I think he could pull off the charm. I think he could pull off the cunning. And I think he could even pull off the, like, um, believability of being a double agent, even though he's not. Um, and I think he pairs well with the other pick that I chose for um, Schaefer. Okay. So uh, that's – I'm familiar with him. I think he'd do good. Uh, Richard Burton played him in uh, in the adaptation, the 1969 adaptation, which Who's I think – Who's Richard Burton? So he's he's a much older actor. I mean, I think he's dead by now. But he was in a movie I really liked called A Man for All Seasons where he played – I think he played St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, and he has also been in – He's been in a lot. I mean, he's he's sort of like one of those like the great Richard Burton. Um, let me just look at like what his most yeah. Let me look at him real quick. Uh, famous. I vague 
vaguely recognize him. He was in... Okay, so he's in the movie Cleopatra, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Beckett. No, he was in Beckett. Not he didn't play. Okay, I'm wrong. Uh, no, I, I am right. I he, never mind. Well, calm down, calm down. He played. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> so okay, let's go on to Lieutenant Schaefer, the American character who's described as a little bit. He's not like that. I don't want to oversell how gritty he is, but he is a little bit more um, rough around the edges. So for me, uh, a younger Kurt Russell. Oh, I love that. But I'm never going to stick my nose up at Kurt Russell. He can be in anything and everything. I like that a lot. Um, For my Schaefer, I picked Ethan Peck. Ethan Peck is... Um, uh, the only thing I've really seen him in is um, the new Star Trek series, Strange New Worlds. He's the new Spock. Um, but I think he has a very, like, uh, charming American look to him. He's not He's not very gritty looking, though, I would say. It's like he's, he wouldn't, he'd have to, it would have to all be added. I don't think he needs to be, though. I don't think he, I think he can do the attitude. I, I haven't really seen it too much from him, but I think he could do it. Um, I don't think he needs to look super grizzled for this i thought about it but i was like looking through american actors trying to find the right like combination of age and grizzle and i just can't find it in, in a way that i like what i'd like for that role you know i think a part of it too is i'm, try I'm trying to think of like modern popular grizzled american actors and it, 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 is it is that even like a look that we get very much nowadays you know or, or are the actors nowadays a lot more pretty um as opposed to being like, you know, grizzled. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Makeup exists. But all, yeah, yeah. You can make it. I mean, it would work. Let's let's you can make you can make somebody look more grizzled. Give give this guy a five o'clock shadow and a scar like it'd be fine. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, and if he's a good actor, he can do it. You know what I mean? Like he can bring it. You know, it doesn't really matter what he looks like. He can he can he can relax his face and, you know, whatever because um, I know a lot about acting, let me tell you. Uh, you oh, should, yeah. I mean, you've been in you shit, so I believe you. Roswell, season, I think it's season three. Um, all right. Mary Ellison, who is the uh, the female spy, and she ends up marrying Smith at the end. Why don't you go first? All right. So um, I picked Emma Watson of, of Harry Potter fame. Um, we haven't really seen her in a lot of big things lately, and I think she's the be the right age now to do something like this. And I think she could pull off the innocence of the beginning of the book and like grow throughout the book to be more of like the competent agent. I, I could I could definitely see And that. I think she would also Yeah. Um and then I think she would also pair well with the Heidi that I chose, which is uh Hannah uh Waddingham. Uh, Hannah Waddingham was, uh, if you watched Game of Thrones, she was the lady that rang the bell and said shame, but that doesn't really sell her well. They, like, covered her up in that. Uh, she's gorgeous. Uh, she's in uh, Ted Lasso. She's in, uh, she plays, like, the old witch in the, the like, Hocus Pocus sequel. Um, she has a, a charming grin, and I could absolutely see her being, like, um, a barmaid in, a, like, Alpine bar place whatever is she so so i'm looking at a picture of her she's 
um, a bit older than the um, she actor. Is, but I could still see her as I could still see her as a waitress in like a bar. Yeah. Like, yeah, I could I could see that too. She she I thought that Heidi and Mary were like the same age because they're described as like cousins I, and they're like they're like kind of like they're described pals. as cousins. But I never got the impression that Heidi was young. I I could see that. I could see why. I mean, she does have a more like like uh experience kind of like taking her cousin under her wing type approach so it would make sense if if they're not the same age um so i i didn't do one for heidi i did one for um mary ellison and again talking about late 70s early 80s adrian barbeau um i just you know i just kind of saw mary ellison as having like dark hair and being able to laugh and have fun and i could see adrian barbeau like you know doing that um she laughs and has fun but she's she's faking it she's like you know she's a a lot of the nazis are it's they're 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 so thirsty <laughs> they're like oh new girls oh my god Ooh. um so i said adrian barbo okay next one general carnaby or rather the general carnaby actor yeah yeah okay i said eric roberts uh, whew, um wow uh okay Oh. that throws me off a little bit but i mean i don't i don't say no to him. what is he supposed to look like that's the thing is my casting didn't even take into account what this man actually looks like we said that he's probably a real person actually i'm looking it up now i don't think he is no yeah cartwright jones is the name of the actor who impersonates him in in the book yeah, the fictional actor. Um, I I put um, Matt Barry. Okay. I love casting this guy. I love him. He's ridiculous. Um, he has a ridiculous British accent, so I think it would be funny to have someone who's like almost humorously British playing uh, an American playing a British man, and then have him put on like a horrible American accent for the second half of it. That's great. That's great. I think that that would actually because. You know, there is some potential for comedic relief in this character because, uh, yes, as soon as like, especially the, during the escape, I think there's a, a yeah, few bits as, that so, are really as funny. soon as the jig is up, you know, he's like, "Listen, I'm not a soldier. I can't be doing this this stuff. I, I, I I'm the you know, I'm." Uh, then at some point, he's like, "You guys go. I'll just stay here." And then Smith is like, "Okay," and like punches him in the face and like carries him off. And it, he's 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 not very competent. And so there's some you know potential for humor there um i think that would work really good yeah i didn't have a very strong image of who he was because i thought of like a i thought of like a general so i thought of like some kind of you know esteemed looking person and i was like oh maybe like uh wilford brimley or something but then oh that's a that's a good one but like especially for the time frame that you're putting it it could that could work but then i was like you know this guy has to be able to keep up with smith and Schaefer, but then he kind of doesn't because he's admittedly like not you know a soldier. But but um, yeah, that that could work. I like Matt Berry though. Okay, I just picked one of the Nazi characters because there's a there's a few of them, and this guy um, von Brauchtisch is uh, he is sort of like a middle middle right. ranking uh, Nazi. There's the high ranking ones. He's basically the one that that kind of walks around the Schloss Adler and commands all of the other um, soldiers there. Actually, I don't know if he's in the Gestapo, if the SS, or like if he's actually, I think he's actually a soldier, but um, 
for von Brauchtisch, uh, I actually, I just wrote down von Brauchtisch. I didn't have someone for him. <laughs> I'm trying to think who would who would do that. Okay. Um, so oh, I, in my head, in I will admit, in the book, well, while I was reading the book, I was thinking of Mads Mikkelsen. So I'll just say that. That's easy. Yeah, yeah that's an and easy even an, and even a younger version of like a very young Mads Mikkelsen would you know would work. So I only cast two Germans. Uh, no, I cast three. Um, I've I cast Kramer, Rosemeyer, and uh, Von Happen. Von I think Von Happen is the one that um, confronts Mary and the one that like sees through her um, her lie. Von Brauchtisch yeah, is the is the one that that does that, I believe. Okay, well, whichever, whatever the name is, um, the guy that the older agent that sees through her her lie and kind of sounds the alarm on everything, and he's like running around for a while, like irate that like the helicopters and the way it is and everything. Anyways, um, I cast Tom Wilkinson. Tom Wilkinson, it, he plays the uh, Falcone in um the like Christopher Nolan Batman movies. He was also in the Full Monty, and he was in uh, the he, World War II he, movie Valkyrie. Yeah, he played a Nazi in Valkyrie. Yeah, um, so he can do it, and I think he looks good for that role. Um, and then for Kramer and Rosemeyer, I I cast um George McKay as Kramer. That's um George McKay's the like lead from the movie 1917. In which he plays a a Brit, but I think he could play a German. It's um, actually George Takei. Okay, that's how it's pronounced. No, no, McKay. George George Takei. You're talking about George Takei. No, I'm not. <laughs> that would be really wild, though, to have George Takei as a Nazi. I don't think he would do it. I don't think he would agree to that. Like, that's a very strange decision, Chris. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> <laughs> yes as soon as you say you're a you say you're a double agent <laughs> all right so okay. all right um and then for rosemeyer i cast kenneth branagh because uh, he could play a, uh, a general yeah and he he's played he's played i believe he's played a nazi and he's played a, a british uh soldier as well in valkyrie oh, he was a british soldier dunkirk. in uh dunkirk yeah yeah so, very subdued role for him but i love him in anything yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. So I did not cast Turner. I thought about casting Turner, and then I never got around to picking anybody. Me neither. I, I kind of just focused on like the, the the people you follow around for the majority of it. Um, and in in my head, like you know, often I fuck it, George Decay, George Decay. <laughs> I I don't. Uh, sometimes I just like insert people from my life, like into these roles, like the the pilot carpenter, like was like someone I work with, Dude. you know. <laughs> I almost did that. I didn't want to be that guy, but like, there's a, a a customer I used to know at the bar in New York that was this um this uh German biker, and she was really like perfect look for a bartender, and would have been able to pull off the accent because she has it. Um, but I was like, how do I go about being like? Well, I know if I have a friend that would be perfect for this role. We should just start doing that and see casting yeah, just like, people that nobody knows like, so except Chris, you and me. Like, oh yeah. oh um daniel wilson guy i knew in high school okay good 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 yeah, exactly somebody that'd be very my exciting fifth grade teacher mr lopez he's perfect take take my word for it he's perfect 
So right. that's um, that's where Eagles dare. Um, like we said, we both liked it, enjoyed it, recommend it. I think it's strong dad lit. We'll have to watch the movie sometime. Talk about it a little bit. Ah, yeah, I definitely want to. I, I wouldn't mind doing like a, I don't know, like a commentary track for that, or like just a quick review afterwards during a scatter shot. We could do like a scatter shot about several of these, maybe like watch Eagle Has Landed and watch Where Eagles Dare, and like just talk about them. Because I watched uh like half of the movie for The Eagle Has Landed. It just came on TV one day, and my dad ended up watching half of it, and then I like fell asleep. But yeah. uh, really cool movie as well. So. Yeah. Okay. There's definitely some discussion to be had about that. Uh, Dadlit-related question, I think. Have you seen the new Indiana Jones movie? No, but I want to. Yeah, yeah. I saw it um, last weekend. Um, oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. Is it is it any good? I think it's good. Um, is, it, is it more in spirit slash better than the last one? So I did not watch the last one. I've seen clips of it. And it, okay, the it, first half of the last one is quite good, and then the last fourth of the last one is quite bad. I I thought um, I thought it was it 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 mostly stayed true to the the spirit of the first three movies. Um, okay, it I thought it was it was a good action adventure movie and a a good you know uh, farewell to a beloved character. Um, Good, because I don't. I didn't really feel the last one did a good farewell. And I mean, yeah. all right. I definitely. I've. I already wanted to see it. I'm definitely going to go see it. Also, just for Mads Mikkelsen, my man Mads. I'm, I'll see anything he's in. Yeah, he's he's good in it. Um, it, it, it he's always you know good. what he always shows up to the table like 110. percent Um, I still will call back to the the Rogue One in uh like television interview where he just pulls out an unopened bottle of vodka and just starts drinking it on air. <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, I saw, I saw like some, some videos of him. I think it was at a premiere or something. And he was just like standing off to the side with someone like smoking a cigarette. And I'm like, he just looked very much like, I just don't really want to be here. You know, <laughs> he, he gives that vibe, but it also comes off as like a very just casual, like, like it's not that important to him. It's very but, European. But he, but he does such a good job in everything that he's in. So yeah, I, I think it's worth seeing. I, I enjoyed it. Um, Have you seen Hannibal? Yes. Oh, the TV, yeah, the TV great show. Yeah, I've, I think I've seen yeah. all of the first season and parts of the second season. Um, yeah, it's it's it's. Quite oh yeah, good. I I, um, liked, I liked him in it too. He was he's very good in that that, that role. Um, Another question. I was curious. What else have you been reading lately? Anything interesting? Even if it's not you know dad lit books. Um, sure. Um, well, like, as you know, like I've said before, I was, I uh, started Moby Dick and I'm, I'm finally like getting back into that and still quite enjoying it much to everyone around me's amazement. Everyone's like, really? And I'm like, yeah, no, it's written really well. One of your friends actually likes it too. We, we talked oh, yeah, about it at the, the last, yeah, the last movie that we watched. Um, but other than that, um, I'm going to be starting Hondo soon i i started like the introduction and then i stopped um but uh i've also been reading a little bit more neil gaiman delving back into some of his short stories um i got my girlfriend into ocean at the end of the lane by him so i reread ocean at the end of the lane which is one of my like top five favorite books 
Um, and then I finished, uh, I read and finished uh, Children of Memory, which is the third book in the series that starts with Children of Time by um, Adrian Tchaikovsky. It's a sci-fi series that I really adore. Um, it's hard to describe without ruining a lot of it, but it's about like humans terraforming planets and affecting the evolution of species. But the first book is about a planet uh, where instead of uh the humans were gonna give uh, apes a ret- like a nanovirus that it speeds up their evolution so that it, they could like settle this planet and like teach like basically make more humans but f- from the bottom up but uh there's a horrible problem and an accident occurs and instead of apes getting uplifted spiders get uplifted so the whole book is like the entire um like over the course of time development of civilization by spiders so it starts off with them as very just like animalistic and then it shows them like developing hunter skills and becoming like hunter gatherers it's called children of time um and like parts of it even read like uh like a conan or like a like a like a high fantasy not high fantasy but like a a harebrained age like fantasy where it's like these spiders are like trying to survive against other clans of intelligent spiders but like it it runs the whole length of their like development as a civilization and it's really cool and then um to the point where they're like a spacefaring race um and then the other books have them go off into space and meet other people and things that i won't ruin for you but um the third book is really good and i quite enjoyed it i'd been putting it off for other books that we were reading and i'm glad i finally got around to it um, I also, while we were waiting, because I'm waiting on you to record our episode on spy literature, and the longer you take, the more spy books I'm going to read, because I also read The 39 Steps recently. Um, that's also really good. Yeah, I've, I've read that one too, John John Buchan. Um, yeah. It was made into an uh, Alfred Hitchcock real good. movie. Really? Yeah. I have to go find that. I, think I have it, to go, because that's a cool story. It's an early Hitchcock. I don't know if it's his it, first that's so That's so interesting, too, because I while I was reading it, I was in my head comparing it to um, North by Northwest, because both, both are kind of people thrown into a situation they're not familiar with and have to, like, play a part. Um, in North by Northwest, it's completely unwillingly, but in this one, the guy, like, willingly takes up the role of amateur spy and, like becomes a master of disguise and like travels around and like unravels a a, a plot it's it's good I, I it's so interesting that you mentioned that hitchcock touched that i have to go find that now um but yeah uh, that's what i've been reading how about you i read some ambrose bierce have you ever read any of his work I'm sorry, what kind of beer ambrose bierce he was a contemporary of mark twain and he's kind of like a good like He's not a counter to Mark Twain, but like he's he's witty. He writes fiction and nonfiction, and he wrote journalism. Um, he I've never he's heard similar of him. to Mark Twain, and he is a Civil War veteran, and um, he he wrote some stories about the Civil War informed by his experience. And um, I was reading; uh, it's called "What I Saw at Shiloh," and it's about his experience at Shiloh, uh, Battle of Shiloh, and it was pretty interesting. Um, very. Uh, I don't know. He he. There were some images of it that really stuck with me. Like he described. So like Shiloh was like a two day battle, and what you know, I don't know a ton about it, but as I understand it, like 
the Confederates, you know, were attacking these Union soldiers. Um, and over overnight, another like regiment of Union soldiers showed up to support their fellow Union soldiers who were getting pretty badly, you know, licked by the Confederates. And he describes being part of that. I think it was like the Ohio regiment that showed up late at, late at night. And he sees this battle going on at night and he's like watching it's like over this hill and he just describes it in such like nightmarish like it's dark out but like every now and then things get lit up with like a cannon or a blast of light and like he sees like the trees he sees like this the silhouettes of people running and it's just like such a i i love that idea of horror has done this before and action movies this before where you can only see what's going on during muzzle flash and like uh it's it's an an interesting aspect of terror, regardless of the genre you put it in, because it's it's only giving you a snippet of information and then putting you back into the dark where you have like you're powerless to react to it. It's kind of a, like a cinematic thing because if the image is so like, you know, strong, um, but actually yeah, Ambrose sure. Bierce wrote uh, a bit of horror, a lot of horror, um, and he uh, uh, Lovecraft cited him as as an influence. Um, Ooh, he wrote this short story, um, in an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, or it might be an incident at Owl Creek Bridge, but it's a really good short story. And it was adapted into a Twilight Zone episode, uh, by the same title. Um, it's really, really good story. And it's set, I think it's set in the civil war. I believe it's, that's a time it's set, but I read, so I was reading, um, some of his stuff, civil war story and, I want to do like a palate cleanser after this book because I have so many books I've amassed. Like I want to read some other stuff, some science fiction. Let's do a, let's, let's read some stuff as a palate cleanser and do a scatter. Sure. I mean, the thing is, is that the stuff I read, I feel like we could talk about, it's like all kind of tangentially like Elmore Leonard is like dadlet technically, even though it's like nothing like Alistair McLean. So I'm sure it's all relevant in some way or another, you know? Yeah. Well, we'll have to we'll have to recon- reconvene for a, a scatter shot soon and discuss all of this stuff. If anyone has any comments or questions or wants to um, critique us in any way, they can contact us at uh, by email at g um, at dadlitpodcast at gmail dot com, um, or you can hit us up on our Instagram uh, at dadlitpodcast. Um, our uh, theme music is Meta Gears by Vitazen. Um, him and his excellent work can be found on Spotify, and you can find him online uh, at Vitazen at uh, .card.co. Yeah. We always want to hear your. Do you have anything else, Your Connor? suggestions for books. Um, so if you think there's a good Dadla book that we should read or something you'd like to hear us talk about, let us know. In the future, we want to do a spy episode. We're going to be doing a, a Western. And uh, we got to get into Michael Crichton pretty soon. So we got to we gotta do it. Yes. He's one, one of the yes. good ones. So thank you for listening as always. Yeah. All right, everybody. Have a, good, uh, have a good day or weekend or whatever. Adios. You now know, get out of here. Get, get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here. Just don't ask questions.